Okay. <laughs> so now we have another opportunity to see what Shanti Deva has to say to our ego, to our self-centeredness. And if you haven't noticed already, uh, self-centeredness fights back. And it often has a fit. Uh, or what, what do we call a temper tantrum? Okay. So we know whenever our mind is having a temper tantrum, uh, the self-centered mind is lying behind it. Yeah, but self-centered mind is very sneaky. It doesn't say, I'm behind the temper tantrum. It puts up a sign that says, this is the truth. (laughs) Yeah. And then it has the temper tantrum. Yeah, and it's presented to us as the truth, factual, objective, impartial, and you better believe it. Yeah, because if you don't believe the temper tantrum of the self-centeredness, you're going to fall apart. You're just going to sit there and disintegrate on your chair. Yeah, nothing will remain of you except your self-centered thought. It won't go away. Yeah, self-grasping ignorance. And, uh, you know, and it makes up such good stories. Yeah, incredible stories. We should, like, write down some of the stories our self-centered thought makes up. Because it weaves things so Coincidentally, whatever happens, we are the innocent, good-willed party. Yeah. And the rest of the world is prejudice against us. And so it's me against the world. Self-centered thought says, doesn't it? I've got to win this battle. Because self-centered thought, I mean, what does it do? It pretends to be our best friend. Doesn't it? Yeah. And it says, if I don't take care of you, who will take care of you? You've got to take care of yourself first. Yes, that makes sense. I will take care of myself first which means I need to have everything I want. Yeah. So take care of myself does not mean keeping a virtuous mind and creating good karma so I don't create more causes of suffering. That is not considered taking care of myself. What's taking care of myself is getting what I want right now. And self-centered thought puts forth all these fantastic arguments about how we're, how it's right. And all the downfalls of not following its, its command. 
Yeah. And if it commands us to create non-virtue, aye, aye, sure. Am I doing that right? Yeah. I've got to do it. I've got to follow self-centered thought immediately. You know, and not listen to that little voice in the back of my head that is the memory of Dharma teachings. Because <laughs> that little voice says, Ah, anger is a defilement. Yeah, greed is keeping you away from awakening. Cause and effect exists. You better look out what you do because you're responsible. Shut up. (laughs) I want my ice cream. Shut up. But that little voice just... You know, it keeps coming back, and we keep going like this. Yeah. And then, when we wind up in a mess in this life, yeah, then do we put the fault on the self-centered thought? No. We say, the world's unfair to me. The world doesn't understand me. Yeah. Self-centered thought was right. I should have taken care of myself first. But we don't investigate and see, I did take care of myself first. And that's why I'm in this mess. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So it's, it's very important in our practice to see the self-centered thought as the enemy. And that's what Shandi Deva keeps telling us over and over and over again. Yeah? And we keep saying, ah, not really. <laughs> but if, if we have, if we have an out like outlook on life that thinks about karma and cause and effect, then we can see the disadvantages of of self-centeredness. If our outlook on life is just thinking about this life's happiness, then self-centeredness is, you know, we want it to be president of the corporation. And it happily takes on the job. Yeah. So this is why I think, you know, really developing a, a Buddhist worldview is important. Because it, it helps you discern the, the different thoughts in your mind and which ones uh, have to do with karma and creating virtue and abandoning non-virtue and which voices have to do with pleasing myself at all costs. Okay, and Shanti Deva doesn't pull any punches. He tells us right exactly to our face. And he writes it in such a way like he's talking to himself. Because if he said, uh, in any, so just to give you, I'm picking a verse, uh, you know, uh, when talking, I should speak from my heart on what is relevant. 
So he talks about himself. He says, I should speak from my heart on what is relevant. So we'll listen to that. Yes, Shantideva, you should speak according to your heart about what is relevant. But if Shantideva said, you should speak from your heart on what is relevant, we'd go, well, I already am. Why are you telling me what to do? Yeah? Would you react like that if there's a you in it? If Shantideva were giving us instructions? Who are you? You lived all these centuries ago in India. You don't know anything about modern Western society. It's changed. Yeah. I don't have to speak from my heart about what is relevant because nobody else does. Yeah. And I want to get along with sentient beings, so if I speak garbage, they'll like me. And I'll get along with them, and I'll have a good relationship with them. Then I can talk about Dharma with them. Yeah, while we're drinking a beer. (laughs) Okay. So we need to, you know, because he talks about himself, maybe we listen a little bit. Not too much. But we need, when we read these verses, when I says, we should think this I, you know, and we should say to ourselves, I should speak from my heart about what is relevant, and then check up, do I? Yeah, do I speak about what is relevant? Well, you know, there's a big sale. At Macy's, they have robes there. Yeah? Maroon, good color maroon, nice quality cloth. We should all go to Macy's. I heard Saks Fifth Avenue is going to stock it too. Maybe we can all go there. I don't know which one has the sale. And they put... I won't say this. (laughs) And the model on the front cover of Vogue modeling the robes was our dear friend Marjorie Taylor Greene. That would be a dangerous choice. That would what? Be a dangerous choice to see the robes. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, this is why I really think it, it we we have to spend some time getting the Buddhist worldview. Yeah. Otherwise it's too easy to just uh mouth the rest of the teachings but not really apply them. Let's cultivate our motivation. <clears throat> so when we uh have a Buddhist worldview. We think long-term. We don't just think about right now and what's good right now. We think about future lives, later this life, and very expansively about how our actions will influence other living beings. 
So this is a very different perspective and then is usually held in the world where the emphasis is on immediate happiness and on oneself, benefiting oneself. So when we look at making decisions and we think about different events, we think long-term. And that involves thinking about karma and its effects, our actions, and the results of our actions. And since we want happiness for ourselves, we want to abandon non-virtue and create virtue. And if that sometimes means giving up a little bit of pleasure, we're okay with doing that. And it also involves thinking of all sentient beings and how can we actualize full awakening to be of benefit to them rather than keeping on spinning in samsara which does not benefit ourselves or other living beings. So here we see that awareness of karma and its effects is very important for living a sane life. And compassion for self and other living beings is also very important. So when we think of the benefits of compassion, it becomes easier to generate compassion ourselves. And when we think of the kindness of others, it also helps us to generate compassion. And when there's compassion in our hearts, there's a certain softness in our hearts, as well as a certain kind of strength and a certain kind of compassion, a certain kind of self-confidence when we have real compassion.
So generate that compassion and the bodhicitta that arises from it. And have the aspiration to attain full awakening, to benefit others. And see listening to teachings this morning as a step in that direction. So sometimes we hear certain bits of news or, uh, you know, we hear different information and our mind gets tight, the mind gets angry, we form an immediate opinion about what is going on and want to immediately act to stop what's ever going on. And we need to to slow down a bit, yeah, and and investigate things. And what actually happened in this incident? Yeah. And not just listen to one person's account, but other people's account. Check what we've heard. Yeah, have compassion for everybody involved and not feel like we have to rush to form an opinion and correct what's ever happening. Because in samsara there is something always happening, and if we spend our whole life chasing these situations, you know, without using much wisdom, then we won't have much time for practice. Yeah. So we need to make sure we have the time for practice, yeah, to contemplate ourselves. And then slowly, when we investigate different situations, then we can see them as part of our practice. We're going to uh, put into action what we have meditated on. And then it's much easier for a good result to come. So we're still on chapter five, guarding alertness, talking about ethical conduct. And uh, you can see that in the whole discussion of ethical conduct, Shantideva keeps hitting at the self-centered thought. He doesn't necessarily say it directly, that the self-centered thought is the enemy, that he saves that. Well, he does, you know, in certain ways, but he really saves the scathing uh, (laughs) uh, talk about self-centeredness for chapter 8. But it becomes readily apparent that to keep ethical conduct, uh, we have to do something with our own self-centered mind that uh, creates a crisis out of 
almost anything. Yeah. So that we always live in crisis. That's kind of how, how the world is working today, you know. The news is, always has to have a crisis. Yeah. Films, there's always a crisis. Our lives, there's always a crisis. So, yeah, samsara is filled with crises, but let's not approach them with a mind that's in crisis. Okay, let's approach them with a mind that has compassion, that a mind, with a mind that is seeking truth, not jumping to conclusions. Okay, so we're on verse 79, which happens to be the one that I used as the example that I randomly picked out. Okay. But to just review, you know, when we start verse 77, all deeds of others are the source of a joy that would be rare even if it could be bought with money. So there it's referring to people's virtuous deeds and learning to rejoice in others' virtue. So at the end of the day, even if we're tired, even if we mess things up during the day, if we take a few minutes to rejoice in the virtue of others and rejoice in the virtues of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, that will uplift our spirits before we go to bed which is important because if you go to bed feeling down, you're going to wake up feeling downer. (laughs) And then in 78, he says, you know, rejoicing in the virtue of others is no loss for me. And in fact, it actually benefits me now by creating a happy mind. And when we rejoice in others' virtues, we create merit, okay, which ripens in our own good circumstances. And if we're jealous of others' virtue and criticize them and compete with them and uh, try and depreciate whatever they did because we want to be better, then, uh, that, or not be better, think we're better. Yeah, being better and thinking we're better are two different things. Yeah, then we wind up experiencing great suffering. And then 79 says, kind of, uh, is giving, now there's a whole series of virtues, uh, verses, uh, directing us in very simple actions in our daily life, how to feel and think and speak. So when talking, I should speak from my heart on what is relevant, making the meaning clear and the speech pleasing. I should not speak out of desire or hatred, but in gentle tones and in moderation. Whoa, that's a lot to do, isn't it? And you think how easy it is to do the opposite. I should speak, well, first of all, from my heart. Yeah. How often do we really speak from our heart? And how often do we uh, 
just pass on rumors that we've heard. Yeah. Or speak with some kind of ulterior motivation. And to speak about what is relevant, you know, not about uh, high-flung conspiracy theories <laughs> that take people away from what's really going on, you know. Like, will Trump reassume the presidency on August 2nd, or will it be August 22nd, you know? And then tracing all the signals uh, that you pick up on the Internet. Yeah, because there's this whole thing now that he's going to be reinstated as the president because the election was false. And, you know, so Q is... is uh, Turning the Q people are turning a lot about that. So um, you know, to, to talk about what's relevant and and not spread rumors or false ideas, or if we heard something that sounds suspicious, you know, to report it to somebody who can do something about it, and just say, "I heard this. I don't know if it's fact." But it's worth investigating, you know, and say it like that instead of, did you know that, blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, we repeat something somebody else told us, which is something somebody else told them, and we're back playing that game of telephone like we did in third grade. Yeah, remember that game? Yeah, it's a good game. We should, you know, do that every year to remind ourselves that everything other people say is not necessarily true. <laughs> okay? And that people may say things that are false without the intention to lie. Yeah. But just because what they heard was not true... And then we're not quite sure what we heard. So, and then we want to tell a good story. So we kind of embellish it a little bit. Yeah, and pretty soon, uh, you know, the Martians are landing on the on the landing there. You know, that's why why Harold created the landing. No, seriously, because he. Uh, he thought there might be extraterrestrial beings who someday might need a place to land. And the Navy is seeing all sorts of things in the sky that they can't explain. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of talk now about that. And just think, we could be the center of it. Yeah. And then we could teach all the Martians the Dharma. Yeah, but we have to learn how to speak Martian first. Okay, who's going to volunteer to do that? <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, thank you. Good. <laughs> so you can learn it first and then teach it to the rest of us. Okay, so, you know, talk about what is relevant. Make the meaning clear. So use vocabulary that the other person understands Use phrases that the other person will understand. We may want to uh, sound very uh, astute and erudite and then speak with a certain kind of language that uh, makes us seem 
really astute and erudite, but nobody understands what in the world we're talking about. Okay? So we should speak with, you know, in a way that makes the meaning clear, and also the speech pleasing. So not insulting other people who disagree. Okay. Now somebody's going to say, well... What about in the scriptures from these great beings? They, they look at and say, you know, how could somebody believe that stupid theory? And then they give uh, an explanation that it, one paragraph is a whole page long, and you can't understand what in the world they're talking about because they're using uh, highfalutin language. Yeah, somebody could ask that question, couldn't they? Yeah, you you pick up one of Jeffrey's things, and it's like, Jam Young Shapa said this. You know, <laughs> what in the world does it mean? Okay, so I don't think Jam Young Shapa is trying to uh, sound like you know a big shot in there, uh, but you know if we're giving a talk about that topic, yeah, and the audience is not an erudite audience, you know, or is not an audience of practitioners, then we uh, use simpler language so they could understand. And we see, first of all, if they're ready to, to speak about that topic. Because we have bodhisattva vows not to explain emptiness to people who are beginners. Why? Because they could misunderstand it and fall to nihilism. Yeah? So we want to make the meaning clear and the speech pleasing, but we have to talk about what is relevant to a specific person. Okay? So I often, for example, when I'm asked to talk, give a general talk about emptiness, to an audience, and I have no idea who's in it. And, you know, it's at a Dharma center, and you can get baby beginners coming in. Then as the example of emptiness, I talk about manners and etiquette and how they differ from one country, one culture to the next, and how those are created by our mind, you know, how we concretize them, how we judge other people by them. But they're actually, uh, you know, things that a particular culture made up. And I give the example of applauding, which in Tibetan culture means you're scaring away ghosts, but in Western culture means you approve of what somebody's doing. Okay. And I use the example sticking out your tongue, which in Tibetan culture is uh, showing others that you're trustworthy because you're not reciting mantras and, and black magic spells. Um, but in the West, it's considered very rude to stick out your tongue at other people. You know, So I think that's a good example just to get people thinking about how things are created uh, by concept and by society and so on, but we shouldn't grasp them as having inherent meaning in, in and of themselves. Okay? So 
just giving you some tips if you come across this. <laughs> One time, um, this was in the when was it? In the seventies. So um, I had heard some teachings, of course, by, uh, about emptiness here and there. And I went to see Kyapche Sung Rinpoche when he was in Dharamsala. And I uh, had my notebook, and I was going to ask him all these questions about emptiness, because I thought emptiness was really cool. And, uh, you know, and I thought, I'm going to ask him these questions and find out. And I asked my questions, and he looked at me. He was a very solemn, the previous Sung Rinpoche was very solemn. He had a goatee, and his eyes, there was nobody home, you know. He had some realization. Anyway, he looks at me and he says, if I answered your questions, you wouldn't understand a thing I was saying. <laughs> and then he proceeded to talk about emptiness. Okay. But uh, I don't know why I told you that story, but, you know, anyway, whatever you get out of it. <laughs> yeah, I d still don't know if I understood what he said. <laughs> okay, I should not speak out of desire or hatred, but in gentle tones and in moderation. What happens when we speak about desire, out of desire, motivated by greed, greed, motivated by wanting? I want this. I need this. It has to happen in this way. Yeah, we come across as bossy. We come across as demanding. Okay, when we come across that way, because we are being that way, then... Are people likely to go along with us? Some people may do it out of fear, and some people may tell us where to go. Okay, but it doesn't foster communication. What happens when we speak out of hatred? When we insult people, we, criti we criticize them, we diminish and denigrate them so that they will do what we want and give us what we want. Again, we create bad feelings. We may frighten somebody into submission, but they aren't going to like us, and it's going to be the wheel of sharp weapons returning upon us in some day. And we just create bad feelings. Okay? But speak in gentle tones and in moderation. So there are times when we have to speak quite directly. When somebody is doing something harmful, you know, it, or in cases uh, where we see quite obvious uh, discrimination against certain people, well, we have to call it out. But there's different ways of calling things out. Yeah? And there's ways of calling it out where we yell and scream and make a scene and da-da-da-da-da. And ways where we say something, uh, you know, to the, to the person right then and there. 
But the, the words are gentle words, but the look on our face and the voice we're using is, is penetrating. Okay. And then to speak in moderation, to not just go on and on and on, assuming that the entire world wants to hear about my problems. On and on. Have you ever met people who go on and on about their stuff? And they repeat themselves, and every time you see them, it's the same story. Okay, so let's not us be one of those people. Speak in gentle tones and in moderation. So I want to give you an example of, you know, calling something out. So one time I had, uh, I forget where I was, someplace in the Midwest. And, uh, you know, I do prison work. And so there had been a group of people, the Dharma students there that did prison work. They took me to a prison and uh, it was in a maximum unit. So I went into the maximum unit and uh, gave a Dharma talk and came out. And, uh, you know, one of the guys from the group was kind of escorting me. There were several of us who had gone in. And, and we started talking about one of the inmates there. And uh, he, he said... You know, oh, that guy was, uh, you know, he was really badly sexually abused when he was young. And when uh, a man is sexually abused, it's much worse than when women are. Yeah, because to me, that implies that women get sexually abused all the time, and it's okay. It's just more, it's, you know, on men it has a much worse impact. And women, you know, it just, it's, it's okay. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, right then and there in the parking lot of the prison, I said, you can't say that. You don't know that, you know, when women are sexually abused. It's very serious. It's very traumatic. You can't say that it's worse for men than it is for women, you know. And I called him out right then and there. And I can't remember exactly what he said, but there was a certain feeling about his response because I came up. I was pretty strong in what I said, but I got a feeling that maybe he had been sexually abused as a kid. Yeah. And so I was wondering by my calling him out, did he feel that it was dissing him and discounting his experience? Which I wouldn't have wanted to do, but I also didn't want to let what he said go without a reply, because what he said was incorrect. Yeah, 
So these kinds of things, you know, I still don't know until that day what was happening with him. But these kind of things happen in life where you're, sometimes you're not sure. You do something with a good motivation. And, you know, before I said it, I had, I didn't have that feeling about him at all. It was after I said it, something about his demeanor. Yeah, so these things happen, and you don't know. And uh, you try and learn from your experience. But it was, uh, it was a difficult situation because I felt like I really needed to say something. I couldn't, even if he, as a child, had been abused, you know, I still needed to say something when he made a comparison like that. Okay. I'm telling too many stories today. (laughs) Okay, verse 80. When beholding someone with my eyes, thinking I shall fully awaken through depending upon this being, I should look at that person with love and an open heart. So this is when we talk about metta or loving kindness, this is the real meaning of, of metta that our, our M.O. towards any living being is one of love and an open heart and wishing them well. And here in this verse, we're not just having ordinary metta, you know, a goodwill towards somebody right now, but we're really generating bodhicitta and saying, you know, based on that love, for others, then I will attain full awakening in order to really be able to benefit that person. Because right now I'm sitting here generating metta towards them. Maybe they pick up the the energy of it, but if I really want to help somebody, I have to be more capable myself. Yeah. So this is a very interesting thing to do when you're sitting in a traffic jam on the highway to look at the other people in the cars and instead of seeing them as competitors for the next four feet in front of you, yeah, to see them as people, you know, who have feelings, who are trying to get somewhere, just like you are, you know, to wish them well, and then to take the further step and say, my awakening depends on them. Okay. And to think that our awakening depends on every single living being. We can't omit even one of them. If we admit one sentient being because we can't stand them, then we cannot attain full awakening because we can't have bodhicitta if we omit anybody. So that means all the mosquitoes in the forest. Yeah, It means all the people who lie, the public officials who lie. It means... You know, all, all of the bugs, including the ticks, you know, 
Can you look at a tick? Can you look at a, how do you say it, cicada? Cicada. Cicada. Yeah. Can you look at a cicada and think, my awakening depends on that? You know, can you look at a killer hornet, you know, and say, my awakening depends on that sentient being? You know, and think that that consciousness born in the body of the tick or the mosquito or the killer hornet is is a consciousness that has the Buddha nature. And that that person, you know, that exists by being merely designated, is not going to be, you know, that bug forever and ever. This is just a temporary karmic appearance. Yeah? And that when we can meet them in a different circumstance and have a different kind of relationship with them. So now the mama turkeys, they're bringing their babies into the garden. The babies are really tiny now, aren't they? Have you seen? They're itty bitty chickies. And they're so cute, much cuter than when they grow up and, and poop right in front of where you're walking. Okay? But we've got to have compassion for them no matter where they poop. And and the uh, peacock that attacked us. Yeah. Have compassion for that peacock. It's not always going to be a peacock. And, you know, so really use these kind of situations where we encounter so many different kinds of people. You know, when you're traveling and, you know, at an airport and people are pushing and shoving and, you know... Or you're at a long life initiation and they're not just pushing and shuffling, they're trampling you. Yeah. And just think, you know, based on these living beings, I will awaken. Hmm. Okay. And look at them with love and an open heart. So I wonder, you know, when we have demonstrations and protests and things turn violent, you know, what would happen if you were in a situation where you there was the time to actually stop and look at somebody like that so that they could take it in, you know? Sometimes things are happening too fast. Somebody can't take it in. But sometimes in those situations, you know, a looking at somebody like that can have an effect. Uh, I heard that in Hamburg while I still was living in Hamburg in one of those teachings I received there. And um, the teacher was sharing a story that happened to a woman. She attended a talk by him. And she said she was uh, stationed as a sanitizer, a sanitary how you call that, something like an emergency person uh, in the health um, department in Iraq. And um, they got a message, a phone call, that there is a person um, who has um, bombs on her 
body yeah. and on a market, uh, fully a live market. And so um, this person was a meta practitioner. So she, her main focus was meta meditation and they practice it in, in their little um, group. And so um, she went ahead and um, went close to that market and she, um, as she said, <laughs> practiced meta. And so this person uh, saw her and this person um, uh, gave up on the plan to um to uh set off the set bombs. off the bombs so yeah mm -hmm. did they capture the person yeah 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 yeah, yeah. okay um then verse 81 always being motivated by great aspiration or being motivated by the remedial forces. If I work in the fields of excellence, benefit, and misery, great virtue will come about. Okay? So, being motivated by the great as uh, aspiration of bodhicitta. Yeah, so either having that motivation, or motivated by the remedial forces, the four opponent powers of regret, yeah, restoring the relationship, some remedial action, and a determination not to do it again. Yeah, so with either of, of those, one is on the side to benefit, uh, the other is on the side of repairing damage. Okay, then if I work in the fields of excellence, benefit, and misery. The field of excellence refers to the holy beings, Okay, our spiritual mentor and the holy beings. Um, and the karma we create with them is very powerful because of their qualities. The uh, field of benefit, yeah, refers to our parents and people who have directly benefited us, yeah, because of the direct benefit that we've received from them. They too are a powerful field with which we create karma. And the field of misery is uh, those who are ill or impoverished or suffering in some way or another. Okay? And so clearly, you know, they, they are in need as well. So these three fields, the karma we create with these people, if it's virtuous, is much stronger. If it's non-virtuous, it's also much stronger, okay? Um, but here he's saying, if we're motivated by the great aspiration of bodhicitta or by the, the four opponent powers, and then we work with uh, the people of these three fields, then we create great merit, okay? That doesn't mean ignoring everybody else. Yeah, it doesn't, pe some people take it as, Oh, well, I'm going to give an offering, so I'm going to give it to this person because I get more merit, uh, but I'm not going to give it to that one because they're not so important. Okay. Uh, and that this happens very much around, you know, oh, you create so much merit giving to the three jewels, but, you know, just some Joe Blow, you know, just sitting on the street. We don't need to do anything for him. And yes, last night in the talk that I was giving to each East-West uh, bookstore, I was reading a passage from uh, the Avatamsaka Sutra where it was talking about 
how when we please sentient beings, we are pleasing the Buddha. When we benefit sentient beings, we're doing the work of the Buddha. Yeah. So to not just be partial and think, uh, you know, oh, I only do things directly for the holy beings and, you know, give them all sorts of this and that. But to realize, you know, the holy beings became that way because of their their bodhicitta, which depends on sentient beings, and that they care about sentient beings more than themselves. So if you take care of sentient beings and serve sentient beings, you're serving your spiritual mentor, you're serving the three jewels. Okay, yeah? So if we benefit a sentient being that's not um, one of our parents of this life, with the um, awareness that they've been our kind mother in past lives, does that put them into the field of benefit? Then, if we have that, we do that I, with that thought. I uh, that's a question you have to ask the Buddha. Okay, I don't know the answer to that, uh, but I do practice that. You know, uh, especially. Uh, you know, when talking about the Dharma, because my family wasn't at all interested in the Dharma. So uh, I, th- I rejoice that I can teach other people's parents, uh, even though I can't teach my, my own. Yeah, so I don't know if that, cre- you know, creates more merit or not. Um, uh, I don't, I'm not tabulating the merit. <laughs> I just know that it's a uh, it's a very good mind to have, and it makes me very happy to think like that. Yeah, these questions about karma are beyond my pay grade. Okay. Okay. Then, um, okay, verse eighty-two. Endowed with wisdom and joy, I should undertake all that I intend to do. I need not depend upon anyone else in any actions that I undertake. When we uh, are working in our lives, no matter what we're doing, to have wisdom and be able to make good decisions and joy, you know, so... uh, Joy that can can look at sentient beings with love, and and feel connected with them, and feel happy to be of service with them. Yeah. So really, check our minds when we're when we're doing different activities and talking with people. Are we doing them with wisdom and joy, or are we doing them with stupidity out of obligation? and resentment, and why do I have to do this? Yeah, our old theme song, it's not fair, it's not fair. If you make me vacuum this floor, and it's not my turn on the rota, I am going to be miserable and let you know how unhappy I am because it's not fair. And we're vacuuming the floor. Yeah, the floor gets vacuumed, and we're miserable. 
And we want to retaliate against whoever made the rota and put us on the rota again for vacuuming the floor when it's not our turn. Yeah? And we've given up a whole opportunity to be joyful and to do something with a good motivation, you know, that benefits other people and doesn't take that long and to have a happy mind doing it. Instead, what we're doing, you know, our attitude is making us miserable. Okay, you're forcing me to cut the carrots this way. I'll do what you want. Yeah. Who are we trying to impress? <laughs> yeah? What are we doing? We come to class and may I attain awakening for the benefit of all sentient beings, but I'm not going to cut the carrots to benefit this one sentient being. Or I will cut the carrots, but not the way they want them to. Yeah. Do you see how foolish we are sometimes? You know, here's a great opportunity to have a happy mind and to do something useful for somebody else, and we turn it into, you know, a disaster, like the worst thing in the world is happening. And who is the one making us miserable? Yeah, we point the finger, that person in the kitchen who's bossing me around, they're the one making me miserable. Really? You don't have any choice about how you feel and how you act? You're completely a puppet, and the puppet strings are attached to that other person? So you don't have any choice? about what attitude you have, really? Yeah, we need to ask ourselves that question. No, I don't have any choice, because they always pick on me again and again and again and again. Those people are so nice to live with, aren't they? Aren't they? Don't you just love being around people that complain all the time and criticize all the time? Yeah. If you're a bodhisattva, you love being around them because they're your field of practice and they help you practice patience. Yeah. And fortitude. So don't go around, you know, that person's complaining and criticizing. Then if you look at that person and say, why do they always have such a negative attitude and they're always complaining and they always say the same thing when they complain? And haven't they listened to these Dharma teachings? Why don't they try and be happy and at least see that other people care about them? They can try and create merit, but they're too stupid. Then who's the one who's criticizing and complaining and giving up an opportunity to feel joyful. Yeah, then it becomes us. 
Okay? So there's plenty of opportunities to feel miserable. You could be the person who starts the misery chain. Remember those letters we used to get when we were young? Yeah, chain letters that everybody sends $10 to the first person on the list, and then you have to send the money to 10, or no, you have to send the letter to 10 more people. They didn't do that in Australia? Oh, it's an excellent way to make money. <laughs> Except I never did those things. I just threw the letter away. But, um, huh? Chain mail. chain mail, yeah. Yeah. So now it becomes chain suffering. You started it off, <laughs> yeah, and you're unhappy about something, and then I'm like, mad because you're always complaining. So I complain about you because you're complaining about that person in the kitchen. And it's anyway, all the fault of the carrots, you know, <laughs> the carrots are sabotaging the world. And <laughs> so that person's unhappy. Then I'm unhappy. Then I go to somebody else and I complain. Do you know what this person, you know, we do so much to benefit them, blah, 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 and all they do is complain, and I'm sick of dealing with them, you know, and I tell you, and then, you know, you get tired of me complaining to you about that person who's complaining about that person. And we all actually have the opportunity to be joyful, and we've completely given it up. Okay, so endowed with wisdom and joy, I should undertake all that I intend to do. Okay, so really try and put that in practice instead of going back to the default method of criticism and complaint. Then I need not depend upon anyone else in any actions that I undertake. Now, we have to understand this correctly. Yeah, It does not mean that when you need help, you don't ask for help. Okay, yeah. So, you know, you're on top of a 10-foot ladder, and you need somebody to hold the ladder, you know, firm. Uh, but, you know, you think, oh, I don't need to depend upon anybody else. You know, and then you fall off the ladder because the ladder wasn't being held. You know? So when you need help, we have to ask for help. Nothing, nothing wrong with asking for help. But what this is referring to, I think, how I read it, is we don't, when we see things clearly and we know that what we're doing is coming from a good place in ourselves, we don't need to run around and look for everybody's approval before we do it. Okay? So you want to come to the Abbey for a retreat? You know, do you really need to ask your co-workers what they think and ask your family what they think and ask your everybody else, tell them all your plans and seek their approval because we can't make our own decision? Yeah, that, that's not, yeah, that's, that's not being an efficacious adult, you know. Here, it's, if you need help, you ask for help. But we don't need 
everybody to give their stamp of approval. Because then it gets, as Lama Yeshi said, then they're going to ask me where to go pee-pee. Shall I... Shall I do this? Shall I do that? Will you help me with this? Will you help me with that? Yeah. Okay. So there we should learn how to think things through and make competent decisions. And if we need help and we need information before making this decision, then to ask. Okay. Then verse 83 the perfections such as generosity are progressively more exalted. But for a little morality, I should not forsake a great gift. Principally, I should consider what will be of the most benefit for others. So when we look at the, the uh, ten, the six or ten perfections, each subsequent one is more exalted in the sense that it, it may be more difficult to practice or more meritorious to practice. Yeah. So generosity is considered the easiest because everybody, even people who, uh, who aren't religious at all, like generosity. The whole world respects generosity. Okay. The whole world doesn't practice it, but the whole world respects it. Okay? Then ethical conduct. So generosity becomes the easiest. Ethical conduct is a little bit more difficult because it involves restraining our, our negative actions. Yeah? Then fortitude is more difficult than that because we have to restrain not just our body and speech, but really transform the mind. And so on like that. That's what it means by the perfections um, are progressively more exalted. But here, Shantideva is giving an example where you're faced with a situation where you could do a very big act of generosity or a very small act of ethical conduct. Okay. So, uh, what would be a good example of that? Mm. Okay, so you want to, let's say, you want to make a, uh, a big offering to a charity or to a temple or monastery or something, and you go in to make the offering, uh, you're a monastic, let's say, or, um, now that's not such a good example. What would, well, anyway, yeah, think about, you can think about <laughs> possible examples. You know, it, it might be a small action of morality, uh, or a small precept that you're keeping. Yeah. But if you do, if you keep that precept exactly, you're giving up the opportunity to give a big gift or to do something that allows somebody else to create a lot of merit. Okay? And so it's, it's saying here that even though, you know, uh, it's said that as we progress up 
the ladder of the perfections. You create more merit. Do not sacrifice a big gift, which is generosity here, to keep uh, a small precept. Okay. Maybe somebody can help me think of... uh, Yeah, you have a situation? Maybe um, somebody, a layperson, requests a puja in a temple and um, plans to make a huge offering, but um, also knows that um, maybe the person will get famous in that monastery for being so generous and um, (laughs) has a lot of greed and attachment to that. So maybe a certain form of line is involved or... Um, yeah, something like that. Yeah, but this is this is a situation where it's talking about you would give up the thing of morality in order to give a a, a, a big gift. Yeah. An example that comes to my mind is that a monastic is not supposed to handle money, but um, definitely it was it's. Um, favorable to take the money from the stimulus and use it to give to charities. Yeah. And so there's a bigger gift of, and to people that are really in need right now, even though breaking the, the precept of handling money. Yeah. Okay. So that, that could be, I was thinking of a, something similar to that, but if you take the example of we all received, um, checks from Uncle Sam, okay, so even though we don't, we try not to handle money, and we have a precept not to handle money, you know, many of the people here sent money to different charities, okay, so in that respect, we we gave up an action of small morality in order to do an action of, of uh, a big action of generosity for people who needed it. Okay, so you know these these kind of situations happen, uh, but we have also have to be careful not to rationalize. Okay, and the big example I will uh, tell you with the next verse, but I think first we should stop and see if there's questions. No? Okay, then I'll go on and give this example. So verse 84, when this is well understood, meaning not you don't sacrifice um, a big gift to keep, uh, you know, for a small act of, of morality. When, the, when you understand that well, I should always strive for the welfare of others. And in the, the past, in the previous verse, It spoke quite uh, obviously, principally, I should consider what will be of the most benefit to others. So that's the guiding line, not uh, this other, you know, doing things like that. Okay, so I should always strive for the welfare of others. The far-seeing merciful ones, uh, the, the Buddhas, have allowed a bodhisattva to do some actions that for others were forbidden. Okay, so the the standard example of this is there is a story somewhere, I think it's in the Jataka 
uh, tales, where in a previous life, the Buddha was the captain of a ship. And uh, with 500 merchants, they were out on the seas uh, looking for wish-fulfilling jewels. And the, uh, the, the Buddha, who was the captain, saw with his clairvoyant powers that, the, uh, that there was one of the merchants who was going to kill all the other, the other uh, 499 merchants in order to take the wealth, you know, that I don't know if they had found the wish-fulfilling jewel, but they had found a lot of other stuff, and so he was going to steal it all by killing the others, okay? And the Buddha saw this, so the Buddha killed him, this deviant person, before he could kill the other 500 merchants, and it said that he created you know, incredible amount of merit doing this. So there's different takes on the meaning of that story. Some people say that uh, the Buddha, the captain, yeah, didn't create any negativity by killing the, the renegade merchant. Other people say that the Buddha did create some negativity because it's a naturally negative action, but the power of the his compassion was so strong that it kind of overcame it, whatever the negative result would have been of, of killing. Okay? So that's great when you're talking about bodhisattvas. Okay? When you're talking about bodhisattvas who have wisdom, who know other people's karma, who have no hatred in their own mind towards somebody else, you know, that they would kill somebody who was going to kill others. So this would be like uh, somebody thinking of killing Hitler before Hitler, you know, went off and did his thing. Okay? So we take that example, which is meant for people with very high realizations, and we say... Oh, I have compassion, so I can do that too. Okay. Actually, our compassion is not compassion, really, if we check our mind. Our compassion is a cover-up for fear, hatred, resentment, something else. But we say... I'm going to do this negative action out of compassion because it's going to protect these other people. But actually, our motivation is not compassion. Okay? So, in verse 84, it's saying, yes, that, uh, you know, is that kind of permission the Buddha did give to the high-level bodhisattvas. So, Let's not run around criticizing everybody we see because they may be a high, high level bodhisattva that's doing something, you know, that is, is very useful to benefit sentient beings. But on the other hand, let's not, you know, um, rationalize, justify, uh, make excuses for our own bad behavior saying that, well, I really have compassion, when we're not bodhisattvas at all. 
Okay, is that clear? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, in the previous verse, it was like, okay, if for the benefit of someone or benefit of all beings, you do a small negativity to accomplish something big, yeah, that's okay because it's a small negativity and a big benefit, okay? And it's a simple kind of action. The example of the ship captain, I mean, they're murdering somebody. This is a serious thing. It's not just a small one. And, uh, you know, that person has those kind of realizations. And they're willing to accept if there is going to be a painful result because it is a naturally negative action, they willingly accept uh, the, to experience that painful result. Yeah. I asked Geshe Dadal uh, about this kind of thing one time and about uh, people saying, well, you know, I'm doing it for the benefit of others. You know, I, I mean, that's the, the standard thing for sexual abuse in, in Buddhist circles. You know, well, it's going to benefit somebody and, you know, giving them high real, you know, so this kind of thing. And so I asked Geshe-la, well, you know, what about if somebody is, you know, saying that that's why they, they did it? And Geshe-la, and I said, how do you tell the difference between somebody who's a bodhisattva and somebody who's charlatananda? And, uh, Geshe-la said, if it's a real bodhisattva, they would be willing to accept the results of their actions. So if there's, uh, ha- it's, you know, if there's negative karma created, uh, because it's a naturally negative action, they will happily experience the result of that negative karma. Or if they will experience, uh, in this lifetime, their reputation getting ruined, if they know for sure this is something beneficial for sentient beings in the long term, then they will happily accept their reputation getting ruined. So then you look when somebody does something, and are they willing to accept the painful karmic or immediate result from doing the action, or are they rationalizing, justifying, making excuses, whatever? trying to be famous in one way or another. Because okay. you see people citing this story all, you know, very frequently, and you really wonder about their motivation. <laughs> so it's cautioning us, you know, not to... Uh, not to lie to ourselves and lie to others. Okay.